Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Listening, hear me. I may not pass this way again. Hello and welcome to the Robert Lane Creative Careers Podcast, a podcast about creativity and making a living in the arts. This episode features a conversation with award-winning comedy producer Gina Lyons. It would be fantastic if you could rate, review and subscribe to the podcast, as doing that helps more people to discover it. It's also wonderful when people share the podcast far and wide. You can find out more information about me and the projects I'm working on at robertlanemusic.co.uk, where you can also sign up to my mailing list to receive news and my thoughts about creativity and the stuff I'm up to. Thank you. Here's my conversation with Gina Lyons. Hi Gina, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm very well as well. Thank you. Uh, whereabouts <laughs> very are you? Well well. Very well, also. Whereabouts are you? Where are you talking to me from? Uh, uh, I live in East London, the depths of East London. So most people call it Essex, but it is E4. Uh, yeah, I'm here at home at the moment. There's a picture of my dog. The Excellent. viewers won't be able to hear this, but I had one of those Etsy prints where you put your dog <laughs> in a regal outfit. And the dog's so. name would be? Gary. Gary. Obviously. King yeah. Gary, the dog, of course. King Gary. Oh, yeah, King Gary, which was a show <laughs> that Tom Davis did. Uh, yeah, Gary, the dog named after Gary Speed. Oh, good. <laughs> awesome. And is um, that part of the world where you started, or are you from elsewhere to begin with? A bit of a mix. So I lived in Weatherby uh, near Leeds until I was about four, and then Northampton, but moved to London at 17, sort of 17 and a half, to go to drama school, which was a complete. Uh. Stupid idea. Uh-huh. Um, which I went for about nine months and then quit. And uh, and then I won a reality TV show and got a job in telly, as you do. Oh, that's living the dream. So let's start with the drama school thing then. So was the original idea to be an actor? Yeah, I think it's just the sort of working class thing of not knowing other roles. Right. Like I knew I wanted to tell stories and, uh, and do that. Um, I was quite good, actually. I was quite a good actor, but... Um, yeah, I remember like when I left drama school and I got an agent and I did a couple of short films and adverts and stuff like that. And my agent used to ring me up and say, stop hanging out with the crew. Like, you should be a producer. And I was like, what's a producer? I, d- I genuinely didn't know what it was. Um, and then I got a load of little rubbish jobs, um, you know, sort of flyering for bars in central yeah. London. And I used to sign on next door to Channel 4 because I lived in Pimlico. And there was a doll office to the left. <laughs> I used to think, oh, one day, and then I opened a magazine and it said, do you think you could be a TV producer? And I thought, yeah, sure. Um, And then I went to what I thought was a one-on-one interview, but it turns out it was an audition. And there was about 2,000 people outside the American church in Tottenham Court Road. And it was a company called Princess Productions that are no longer. And so there was like, you know, APs and producers everywhere and you'd have to go from one bit to the next. And they'd ask questions like, what do you do? You're the producer of Big Brother. What do you do differently? And I was like, little brother for dwarfs. And <laughs> would just come out with stupid stuff and got through to the next round, the next round. That whole process took about three months. Um, and then I didn't get into the final 12, I think it was. Uh, so I packed up my bags, went back to Northampton, got a bar job. Um, and then got a phone call saying someone had dropped out on the Sunday. And could you start filming on the Monday? So I did it. And, uh, and then I won that series which was only one series because funny enough people don't want to see how tv's made (laughs) (laughs) Um, it's boring uh yeah so i won that series and then got a job at so tv with graham norton's company fantastic so what were you working on then with that job uh development always it's always sort of been development really that's not true now i do all sorts but I was a development AP, which is an assistant producer, but really it was my first job in telly and I didn't know what I was doing. So sure. it was almost like a, just a training ground. Um, and I worked quite closely with a producer called Tom Miller, who's very experienced and brilliant and doing lots of great stuff. Um, I was there, it was a year contract and I stayed for five. Yeah. And then I uh, went out as a freelancer into the industry and realised it was completely different and sort of started as an AP, moved up to producer, went to series producer for a couple of shows and then wanted to move over to scripted, where which is what I always wanted to do, mm-hmm. uh, scripted comedy. 
And it was really tough, like just making that move. Anyone that works in TV will tell you it's a game of two halves. It's scripted and unscripted. Okay. And they are entirely different industries, different people, different rates, um, different, you know, culture. Everything is completely different. So making the move across was very hard. And it took about four years to really get something proper. I did a lot of non-TX pilots, worked mm-hmm. uh, with a company, again, that's defunct, Um Worked with a company doing all their stuff, script editing and, you know, but, um, but yes, it's a tough move to go from unscripted to scripted. Mm. Turns out, not too hard a job either. <laughs> Isn't that the way sometimes that actually getting there is a challenge? But maybe that's because it's what you want to be doing or what you were meant to be doing that once you actually got there. I think unscripted, as a producer or a series producer, you do everything. Mm. You know, if you're doing a panel show, you'll write jokes. You, you know, chances are you'll have two days of gag writers. So they have to punch something up. They don't just write the show for you. Okay. So you write, you cast people, you come up with games, you, you do everything. And when you get scripted, obviously, because it's like two, three times the amount of budget, there is somebody for every everything. Okay. So my sort of hands-on, rough and ready approach, I was constantly told, like, you know, do less. We've got someone to do that, and there's someone to do that, and there's someone to do that. So it's a different job to learn, but I wouldn't say it was harder. I have a lot of respect for people in unscripted yeah. because I know what they do. Yeah. Cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it might be useful then for anyone listening in if we actually explained what a producer was. And I think also, from my understanding, it can vary from project to project a little bit as well as to what oh my God, from person to person. It's there isn't. I mean, I always say it's the glue. So you've got a bunch of people doing all different stuff, and you need somebody to sort of steer the ship. Okay. So it's the glue that keeps everyone together, and it's make sure that everyone's communicated to, and everyone's got the same vision, and everyone's got the same goal, and um. It, but it's very different. So in branded and film, you'd be more of a what we would call a line producer. You'd control the budget a lot more. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't touch a budget. I look at it, and I have creative ideas about it, but I wouldn't input you know, £1,200 a week or anything like that. Um, And, yeah, mostly it's the glue. But in the UK, it tends to be more of a creative role. Mm -hmm. It's somebody to sort of get the writer's vision uh, to to page and then to screen and then in the edit to delivery. So it's much more of creative. Sometimes in America, the showrunner would take more of that job and the producer, again, is a bit more of a line producer, a bit more of a logistical person. So it really differs from each thing. I've worked on branded stuff um, just by uh, chance, really, like somebody would have left TV and owned a company and they've got a gig with somebody or they've got a Vodafone commercial or this or that, and I've worked on that stuff. But if I went into the brand world, it would be a completely different job fully. So for me, it's very much working with writers, telling the story that they want to tell on the page, developing that up, and then getting the right director and the right team together to, you know, execute that idea as well as we can. Right. So for my job, it's very creative, but I know a lot of people that aren't that still do my job. So Cool. Um, if I can go back to that thing you were talking about then of being on the short films as an actor and hanging out with the crew and stuff, I find yeah. that really interesting. So was it just the... Was it the people that were more interested than the actors or was it just the, the sort of role and the job and the techie side of it that just got your interest? I don't know. I think it was probably because, especially when you leave drama school when you're young, actors, they're a bit narcissistic, they're a bit young, they're a bit... It wasn't, you know, it's, not, it's not like that now. You know, I'm pushing 40 and when I meet people, they're, they're people that have... When I'm working with actors now, they've, they've gone through that process and they're fully-fledged actors, so it's a diff- they're a different kettle of fish. But, yeah, I don't know. I just found the other people more interesting and wanted to wanted to know what they did and um, what each role did. And then I would work with a filmmaker friend of mine called Nick Winter. Um, he set up a little company called Porcelain Film, and we would make stuff together, and I would go out and get money, and I would cast it, and we would put on these short films. In fact, someone sent me a short film last week that I had no memory of making. <laughs> I was like, I do not remember. And then it all started coming back to me when I was watching it. I was like, God, yeah. We did that in that nightclub at 2 2 p.m. in the afternoon. It was bright light (laughs) because of all the sun. Um, Yeah, so I think I I was just um, 
more interested in that side of it. I mean, I love actors and I, and I, I work with some amazing, I've worked with like people on my wish list, you know, mm-hmm. I've had a really, I've had a really lucky career. Um, but my, my favorite people in the world are, are writers. I like how their brain works and I like trying to get into their thought process and helping them sort of regurgitate the story that they want to tell. Mm. So that's my, um, that's my sweet spot. With those short films that you were making, then, so it's as, as an actor and someone who's kind of now getting into the idea of like, I've got to make some of my own stuff because everyone I talk to for this podcast is like, just make your own stuff. You can't wait around for the people to bring stuff to you. I know. Um, but that process in itself, like, this is a producer's job as well, is getting the people together in the locations. And then I've, I think with some of your short films that I've sort of looked a bit at, you had some pretty top notch actors, you know, for some of those stuff. So how you went about casting them and getting the bits and pieces together really like that's a difficulty that might be off-putting to somebody from the outside but then I guess you don't need to do that do you You need an iPhone and you need an idea I suppose to get something done yeah I think good producers producers that I like and producers that I'm friends with that I I rate are very good at putting putting the thing together it's Mm -hmm. the alchemy so they'll read a script so I think I think the film you're referring to is not Sophie's Choice with Catherine Tate and Alex McQueen is it yeah that was that was one yeah so that was um I used to run a oh was that me so I just you raised your hand, hand. Yeah. um <laughs> you could just do that run, if you want I'll see yeah I know I could literally <laughs> just wait I used to run a comedy night for So TV called So Comedy, uh, and we had a sketch group on there called Comedy Bitch, and they did a really funny uh, sketch about two parents that were sitting down their child to say, "Looks what like they're going to say they're getting a divorce," and then the twist was they're asking the little girl to move out. And then years later, Tom started working on this as a script, and he was an ex actor who did the stand up sketch stuff—not stand up, but sketch. And now he's a great writer. And funny enough, I've just read his other script that I'm hoping to work with. Um, and he tied up with Matt Holt, who's a fantastic comedy director, who's very good with sort of new writers. Mm. Um, and they teed up and they made this sketch into a short film. And they said, would you produce it? And I had lunch with them and I said, oh, who would you want to be in it? And they were like, literally anyone. And I was like, no, come on. Like, who's the dream cast? And they said, Catherine Tate um, and Alex McQueen. And I was friends with an actor who was in something just with Alex, and then he was going, he was in something with Catherine Tate. And he told me that they were really keen to work with each other. Mm. So when I approached their agents, I, I mean, if they're listening, I don't want to get in trouble, but I kind of pitched it that the other one was doing it and just got them both on board. They had a lovely day. We shot it in a day and it was it was good fun. And Alex is still a good friend of mine. Um, so yeah, so I think it's it's problem solving. You just have to go, I need this, who's got this? I need that, who's got that? And I think that person will come with that person. And I think that's the missing thing. And I think also for actors that want to write, just collaboration. Like the best scripts, the best writers that I have, they're not collaborating now, but their first seven scripts were with a, a writing partner. And whether that's a performer producer or a writer writer or two actor writers, whatever that is, it's a really good place to sort of hone your skills and and learn. Mm. Um, funny enough, two of the female writers that I work with now, they came from sort of duos. Um, and they're not now because, you know, they've the it's their story that they want to tell and they're prepared to do it on their own now. But yeah, I just think you just have to you have to start. Yeah, start now, get perfect later. I love that you did a Bob Geldof on them as well. That's the whole Live Aid thing of like, no, the Who are playing Queen, so you should definitely play as well. Yeah, do that yeah Bob Geldof then, that's good take home, I think. <laughs> yeah, that's Bob the- for everyone. And, you know, a lot of the times, you know, I have been sort of attached to projects that not necessarily I think are the best thing in the world, no. but they've managed to get someone that I really rate or a performer that I really rate, and, I, and it sort of helps the vision come a bit stronger right so i might on the page go it's an okay script it's quite good but actually they've managed to cast this person or they've got this director and i know what they're going to bring just putting people together that's interesting and how important are shorts then would you say in general well i i love shorts and i tried to i haven't done it this year actually but i tried to go to a festival a year i tried to make a short film every year so um trying to think of a one last year now but the year before, uh, actor, comedian Ed Keir and his writing director partner, Kringo Williamson, 
they had a, had a feature film that they wanted to do, but we sort of needed to work together first. Like, let's before we sort of go out to market and ask people for two point five million. We sort of, you know, not a proof of concept because what we ended up doing was a drama, um, and this is a comedy. But we would, you know, right? Let's get together. Let's cast this. Let's let's work together. And it's a really beautiful film. Again, it was shot in a day. It cost about five grand that we all chipped in with. Mm-hmm. I think they're invaluable and it gives you that piece of IP, that piece of this is how I want to tell the story or this is how it could look or I'm a big advocate of it. And also when I do go to festivals, when I have a film in festivals and I tend to go, I see I'm a bit of a geek with things like the grade and certain colours and palettes that come onto telly and they're groundbreaking. I've seen them in short films, you know, two years prior I really do think the best of our people are making short films. And they're sort of leading the um, the development of stuff, I suppose, as well. Yeah. And you get to yeah, experiment, totally. I guess, more than you might do in a mainstream thing, maybe. Say that again. You get to experiment more if you're making your own short than you might do in a mainstream thing, and therefore... Absolutely. I mean, you don't have the schedules and the time restraints and all that sort of stuff. Mostly actors will sort of know that you'll just do it until it's done, and they're not sort of going, where's my hour lunch break, and where's my this, where's my that, like you do when there's a big buyer attached and a big broadcaster, and you have to because there's rules and regulations of how to film in the UK. Those kind of go out the window with short films. Yeah. I mean, in the film that I did with Ed and Kringo, um, he had a gun, so we had to have like a proper person to facilitate that. And I'm doing a, a new short with Matt Holt and um, uh, and a writer called Josh Merritt. And I was going through the script, going, "Get rid of the policeman." That's you have to if you're you know if you're doing policeman in a scene, you have to have the actual police there. You have to get the proper uniform. It's a pain in the ass. So certain things. Uh, like that but mostly you can sort of I mean we did a when I was about 19 I made a feature film called Breathe with Nick Winter again made on about 20 grand our own money a lot of night shoots and we had a scene where he jumps on a car bonnet and smashes the windscreen yeah and our sugar glass didn't arrive in time so we just said but we're going to smash this car up let's do it in one take you would never dream of doing that in tv or film or somewhere where you've got proper backing and but with a short film, you can sort of go, right, it's one. it was like two in the morning and we were like, right, let's do it. We've got one take. It was brilliant, by the way. Yeah. Uh, so he smashed it. But uh, pun intended. But uh, yeah, I think short films, they allow you to think outside the box and push the boundaries a little bit more. Yeah, interesting. Uh, so actually, although they might appear harder because you've got to get everything together and you're doing it on a small budget or no budget, I suppose in yeah. another way, it's easier because... You can do what you want to a degree. I don't know. I mean, less people are watching, aren't they? Yeah. People aren't on your case with how it's done. I mean, as a decent producer, you have to be put people's welfare and safety first, obviously. But, yeah, you can push boundaries a little bit. I do wonder what it would be like doing a film for the BFI or BBC, you know, because... You need proper. You need better budget because though you can't, then you've got a sort of governing body above you, and you can't be sort of taking those um, wild approaches at all. It's interesting, isn't it? Because like in my experience of film, I've done a couple of short films, independent films, and stuff. And like with those, it's the director's also holding the camera, and then there's a oh. guy who's holding a sound boom, and then there's someone holding a light from IKEA just to get to. And then yeah. things break down, and it's supposed to be one weekend, and it ends up being three months as well. So there's that that stress of it but then i was on a um an indian film it's just a very small part so it's like um what do they call it a hinglish film so half in hindi half english and the crew was like huge and at one point i was just stood there waiting to do a bit and i looked and there was about 40 people behind the camera and i couldn't work out what at least half of them were doing (laughs) they were just there so it's like the the vast difference in stuff i suppose when money and whatever gets involved I know. and sometimes because I come from independent film kind of I did one when I before I got into telly and because I still do short films sometimes like my last show I did a 10-part series for CBS had 141 crew members wow there is a part of me that goes we could have done this scene on that you know there is a part because I've seen some really amazing stuff made on really tiny teams mm-hmm. and I'm also an advocate of some of my best shows that I've enjoyed watching over the last few years have had quite a tight writing process. Right. Well, you know, like Succession, it's Jesse Armstrong's vision, Hacks, Husband and Wife, 
Colin from accounts, husband and wife. And sometimes I think sometimes things can get messy the more creative heads and more voices are there. Don't get me wrong, it's amazing to work for stuff when you've got support and facilities and help and really smart people who have done it time and time again. But for the for the sort of sort of a small creative moment, I think keeping that pot quite small is is imperative. Mm. Giving the person room to think and to how it wants to be. And it turns out that when I watch telly, I think they're some of my best shows. Mm. Interesting. Talking about that, as you mentioned, how um, how a collaborative how collaborative a producer role is, certainly in the way that you do it. So what is a perfect collaboration then? What makes a team really work? How much sort of, you mentioned as well, going through a script and saying, oh, don't do that because of budget reasons or whatever. So what am I trying to ask? What's a perfect collaboration where everyone's doing the right thing and everyone's got their own space and, and how often does it come up and how often does it not well, come up? Well, I think up? there's sort of a, there's, in the sort of British setup, if you're making a six-part series and there's one writer writing six episodes, right. which is what happens more in the UK, when you go to America, even for 10 episodes, you'll have a writer's room of eight, sure. nine people. And they'll take an episode each and the showrunner might take episode one, episode 10. Yep. Um, so that's a different thing because when the scripts come to us, they're pretty cooked. Mm-hmm. Um, then we'll do our producing notes and this could be funnier and what's she doing there and can we set this in the kitchen and all that sort of mm. stuff. But my sort of ideal way of it ever working is a very close relationship with the writer-producer at the start so those things can be really worked out and then a very close relationship with the producer-director. Whenever I've worked with directors that are really open and share share their even their schedule like this is what I want to shoot today and this is I want to be off this by lunch so many directors don't do that but if they do if you know as a producer and there's a couple of my favorite directors that really do do all this and they go I want to be off this scene by lunch so because this scene's going to take three and a half hours if you know that as a producer you can help manage the stuff that when the director's caught up filming you know, you can start getting things ready. You can start talking to HODs, going, we're going to be on this after, you know, after lunch. Have you got the costume ready? Have you got this? Have you got that? So, yeah, the, I, I just believe in doing everything we love and doing everything, being very communicative and just sharing that sort of information. So some people are, I've been on sets where it's director, first AD and DOP, like in a little huddle. Mm. And I think well, you're not the only three people making the show. You're, you know, and we used to, there was one show where, turned over and the sound wasn't ready and it's like that's because you're huddling and you're keeping everything insular you know so it's it should be everywhere and I like to as well tell people what we're thinking so we're actually Mm -hmm. thinking of moving that garage scene up two weeks in the schedule Mm -hmm. instead of it being a definite like we are doing this giving people a heads up because a lot of the time, a producer and an AD and the, the execs will come up with a plan, but they haven't discussed it with their HODs. And then you present the plan and then the HOD says, well, I can't do that because that costume's coming from America and it's going to take 45 days, whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. So I just think uh, I think it, it happens across the board, but the writer-producer, if that's tight and the producer and director are tight and the director's got their head in the scripts and the shots and how it's going to work so the producer can help feed off their plan to the rest of the team. Mm. Great. You mentioned as well, sometimes I think that putting a short film together with a a group of people that you want to do something else with is good. It's kind of Mm -hmm. like an auditioning that team maybe, I suppose. Has there been occasions where you've done that first bit and then thought, nah, we we probably won't do any more. You have to name names, obviously. I'll name them all. Make (laughs) it an interesting podcast. Um, (laughs) No, yeah, I mean, of course, things. Some some people gel and some people don't. I think, me personally, I like people that say what they think. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really struggle when somebody is, you know, they're thinking something. You know, they're unhappy with something, but they sort of keep it to themselves. I struggle with those people. Yeah. It sort of feeds paranoia, and I just think, uh, yeah. So I like people that are quite open and upfront. And if somebody talks before they think, wow. I'm a big fan of them. That's because it's that's me as well. I, everything there's, you know that I'm not thinking anything bad because it would have come out by now. <laughs> um, so yeah, you work with some people and you think that's they're not my way of working or they're you know a bit uptight or and the other thing that I I obviously I predominantly work in comedy 
it's comedy. Like we're making funny stuff. Like we we should all, you know, I, I I'm one of those annoying producers that walks around set go, we could be stuck in shelves. Um, <laughs> I just think, yeah. So people that are joyous to work with, I'll work with again and again and again. Yeah. And people that are open and and not not afraid to say they're struggling or they need yeah. help or they don't understand something. I think when you find people like that, my last director, Tristram Shapiro, I mean, he's a god. He's a comedy god. He's done everything. Every hit show that you'll like, he's, he's directed. And the difference between him and other comedy directors was was outstanding. You know, he's really, he's really joyous and fun. Mm. And it filters through the whole team. Mm. And we've still got a WhatsApp going like six months after shooting with the cast and the team and everything. So... Yeah, I think I have worked with people that I wouldn't work with again, but I've worked with a lot of people that I, that I keep on a list and mm. I make sure that I'll invite them back. Good. <laughs> it's so interesting, isn't it? Because it's like it's not necessarily about how good people are or what they do either, is it? It's It can be, you know, you can't stand us all and it's their breakfast or whatever it is. But it's like when you're working mm. together on something like that, it's really important. A question about actors then. Yeah. Is there something that good comedy performers uh share and have in common as an approach or are they all very different um no everyone's so i always used to say there was two types of stand-up there was really dry people Mm. that would get on stage and be hilarious and you think where the fuck is this person backstage (laughs) and then there are people that were exactly the same on on stage and off my example that i always use is russell kane he's exactly the same yep his brain works at a million miles. He's just like his stand-up persona. But it's not a persona, it's him. And I suppose comedy actors can be quite similar. Um, I would say the thing that unites them is being curious, like constantly curious and, and asking why. And, and I, t- I mean, comedy tends to attract people that have had some trauma mm. because you sort of have to hit something in order to find everything fucking funny. <laughs> you know, you sort of have to have been through something to not take life so seriously. Yeah. And so a lot of people, my favourite, you know, people that work in comedy, they just have that way of going, what's funny about it? And just finding that funny in every situation. It's interesting because I do think comedy people can do drama, but I don't think all drama people can do comedy. Have you been watching um, Idris Elba's um, Hijack on Apple? No, I've not seen that yet. He's got a big, they've got a big comedy cast in it. And I think it's because the director worked in comedy years ago or the writer. Um, but there's, you know, there's some really top comedy people in those, in, in a very serious drama. And right. they pull it off brilliantly. Mm. Yeah, so I think it just makes them better actors in general. But I would say being curious and, and, and just constantly going, what's funny about this bit? Mm. What's funny about this bit? Mm. It's interesting, that thing, the whole comedy drama thing, isn't it? Because um, I've heard it's said about just apart from acting but writing as well like you can think of dozens hundreds of great drama films but it's hard to think of really 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 top-notch fantastic comedy films which must potentially mean they're quite hard to do well yes i mean i think being being funny is much harder than than everything yeah. Like m- making an audience unify and laugh yeah. is incredibly hard. It's so much easier to make them cry than it is to make them laugh. Um, and I have the utmost respect for anyone that does it in any. I mean, you even get editors, you, you know, it filters across the whole board. You get editors that know if I cut out here, it'll be funnier. Yeah. And if I cut, if I make this go on a bit, it'll be funnier. Yeah. So it's a real skill. Um, I do think that our, I, I think the reason why we don't have large grossing comedy. Uh, commercial films in the UK is because of our setup. Okay. I don't, you know, I don't think anyone's paying for the scripts. Mm-hmm. So if you're a funny writer, you're going to go to a broadcaster and make 10, 10 times six episodes okay. and get 60K that way uh, because you're not going to get it from a feature film and you're going to sell that feature film around and around and around and around. I think it's our system that's broken. Um, and funny enough, because I've got a feature film that I'm I'm looking for a writer for now, and it's a comedy, and it's basically me and my husband got drunk on our honeymoon and bought a hotel. So if you Google drunk couple Sri Lanka, you'll see the story. <laughs> um, and it's a really funny story. We sold it once, we've got the rights back, and I've sort of uh, we're going through a deal with an amazing company with an amazing exec who's done every show you can imagine. 
And we're sort of going through it and it, we all agree it's a feature film and it's a comedy and it's like, right, who's the biggest comedy film writer that we can find? And it's like, no one's doing it. Or, or, or if they are, they've gone to America to do it properly. So it is, it's our system, I think. But I also believe, I'm a big believer of content is content. And the other, the how it's delivered can be learned. The structure is something that you can learn. Um, but being funny, I don't think you can learn. I think, you, well, yeah, I suppose you can get better at it as a muscle. But I do think there's an instinct to, to being funny. Mm. So yeah, I just think it's thing. But I'm a big, but I'm a big Judd Apatow fan, and I'll watch his films again and again and again. And I just think we could smash it in England. You know, if you look at Damon and Ian, what they did with the Inbetweeners, like such high-grossing films. Mm. And I really thought that was going to sort of change commercial comedy features, um, but unfortunately, it hasn't really. I just don't think the support systems here, but it might change with all this that's going on. So does that mean that TV is stronger for that then? I mean, certainly it seems to me that a sort of comedy drama is quite a strong vein of of broadcasting at the moment in the UK. Well, they're all saying they don't really want it, actually, at the minute. But wow. um, what I think is the problem, and I've said this on Twitter before, I don't like the fact that we have two departments in our... We have drama and comedy. And I think the reason why certain shows have done so well on streamers is because they fall in the gaps. Hmm. They're thriller comedy, they're drama, they're, they're a mixture of everything. They're just good stories told brilliantly. And streamers have been able to do that because mostly they have a scripted team. Okay. And even with scripted, they'll loop in all their other teams for like Netflix are sort of well known for it. Like our documentary team will read this. I think Apple did it actually as well. They get lots of different departments to read the same, to read the scripts. Um, and I think we lose stuff sometimes. I've lost out on commissions because it's not funny enough hmm. or it's a bit too drama and it's it's a shame because they, they would still make really interesting stories. Um, I think comedy drama has done critically the best, um, but numbers, bums on seats and telly, you know, our audience tends to be over the age of 40 for broadcast telly. So it's, yeah, it's a bit... Yeah, who knows? Yeah. I think we're all watching TikTok, aren't we? <laughs> well, yeah, oh, yeah. I, you know, it's interesting that in it, in how uh, the platforms drive the way that stuff is made as well, I suppose. So, like, the streaming thing, um, you know, box set series that everyone's going to sit down and spend hours watching on versus the TikTok thing where it's like you got to get in and get someone's attention in two or three seconds. Yeah, it's all – every, every – um, Everything is completely different to how you, how an audience consumes it, mm. and so. But I think that's the thing that can be learned. Uh, you know, mm. I, I definitely think. I mean, I've cast two people off TikTok, and they've done amazingly in shows. Um, yeah, I don't know, but also interesting. The streamers are going back to the sort of terrestrial style now and releasing an episode a week, uh, and they're certainly not paying what they were paying for um, sort of production fees. So. I, it, there's a really interesting Vulture article, uh, which I'll send you afterwards, which is sort of heartbreaking when you look at the industry. But I think we're going through a um, a change and people far cleverer than me will be able to predict what's going to happen. I have no idea. I just like stories and I just like telling stories. And if you get a, a broadcaster or a commissioner that gets that story and lets you tell it, I don't think it matters where it's on. Like, I, I don't know about you, and I, I don't know about your reader, uh, listeners, but I'll get any subscription service if someone tells me there's a good show on there. Like, I've got the subscription service just for that show. Yeah. Um, and I don't watch TV. I don't watch one to five of an evening and just um, see what's coming on. I go, right, I'm going to watch this on Netflix, and I'm going to go over to Apple and watch this, and then I'm going to record this BBC iPlayer yeah, show. And, yeah. um, so it's, it's interesting. It's all changing, but... And then I the, think stories prevail. The other side of that then is if there's something that I've, I know is, is out somewhere and I really want to see it, I'll be looking mm. which service is carrying it. And sometimes they aren't. <laughs> and it's like, which is kind of cool in its own way, actually. I'm trying to think of an example. Is it All My Friends Hate Me? That yeah. film took me ages to actually find somewhere to watch that because I'd missed it. In yeah, because when the license runs out on BBC, then Netflix will pick it up. But there's usually a few yeah. months, isn't there, in the gap? And so the... I've had, I've got a Sky. Uh, you know, I pay for Sky, and sometimes I've 
not recorded something and it's been on HBO and I've not recorded it and then it's gone and I'm like, oh no, you know, by the time everyone's talking about it. Which is kind yeah, of interesting in a way, isn't it? It's like the old days then. Like if you miss it, you've got to wait for it to be on telly two years know, later. Picked up somewhere else. Yeah. Give it a year and it'll be on XYZ. Yeah, yeah. I know, it's, it's tough and it's annoying that we've got all these different, you know, things that we're paying. I mean, we pay about 200 quid a month for everything. You know, if you add it all up. And sometimes you sit there going, oh, what's what, what? Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I just think it, all I can do and all I, I can't think of the business side of it as much because it's sort of mind-boggling. I'm not intelligent enough to think of or predict how it's going to go. But I do just think that people will find good stories and we just have to let writers write and do what they do brilliantly. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think we just have to let writers write and support storytellers, however they work that out with the strike in America. It will ripple down to us. It's affecting us now anyway. Mm-hmm. The last show I made was for an American network, for an American audience. Um, so, you know, and, and the UK aren't commissioning as much. They've sort of got a bit quiet. Um, so it's 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 a really tough time for everyone at the minute, but I am hoping that if the strike goes in favour of the writers, then we'll, we'll have a big influx like we have the last few years of shows being made over here and mm. stuff like that. Mm. It's, there's always problems, isn't there? But I suppose there's always reasons not to do things and to feel miserable, but you do it anyway. And that, as you say, it's just getting stories out there using whatever yeah. whatever method is working at the time. Back to your producer thing of just making stuff happen, I suppose. Um, yeah. And it is, yeah, I think the making your own stuff as well, because people who listen in who, who want to get into, uh, you know, creative industries or whatever, most people I've spoken to have said, just make your own stuff. And uh, there's a good Rob Brydon quote. I think it was... Don't tell people what you can do. Show them what you can do. So that thing of pitching, and I guess that comes back to you as well. I was going to ask about this. When you're, are you in the position now where you're you're pitching for gigs, or are gigs coming your way? Does it vary? And and then how important is it to have a body of stuff where you can go? This is my stuff. Well, funny enough, so I for t- I have a production company which I just just for my tax, like every freelancer does. Um, but I started sort of developing IP and and working with writers performers on their initial scripts and people are paying less and less for scripts nowadays so if they're a brand new writer that's come to me with an idea i've said look you've got to write it no one's going to pay for it if they are you might spend a year trying to get a bit of money and even options nowadays some options are a grand for 18 months i mean you have to sort of weigh it up Mm. i'm like get it to where you want it to get it and then i'll shop it around so i renamed my production company in speech marks um Bobby Girl Productions and then I, I looked around the industry and thought I've got some really good bloody shows and I'm sort of giving them away to production companies I was sort of like pairing up and and I thought well I'm just going to try and do it myself and get these stories out there so I've got about 12 things on my slate and they're all at about four of them are at various indies um but yeah it's that thing of Rob Brydon just do it really I think you just have to uh, do it and it's hard because me and the writer no one's getting paid for absolutely years in some cases me and a writer have had a show that we've, we've been developing i'm talking daily for five years and it's with a big streamer and it may or not go into development and it's it's really tough mm. uh but you just have to find the people that you like working with and keep throwing stuff out there yeah i guess that's a big key isn't it if you're enjoying the process that. Well, this is it. I mean, I wake up at four in the morning thinking about a plot twist or a character point or something that she could say or a funny line. And uh, the people, the, the writers I work with, know that it's sort of it's twenty four seven for all of us. We're, we're, oh my god, on WhatsApp, and we'll have a conversation about something weird that happened or something funny that happened that would be good for X character in X, you know, scene. So if you love what you're doing, it's it's fine. I think that's what you've just got to do. And people starting out, you know, just things like, I don't know if it's still going, but I used to find people to collaborate with on Mandy.com and, um, and just build a bit of a tribe. I'll tell you what I did as well, which I think is a, is a was a clever move, not really necessarily for me, but I used to work with this writer, a director called Nick Winter, um, and he worked with a, back then, he was a sound guy called Jeet, who's now an executive producer, and he, and and Greg Hall, who's become a really good director. 
this team of people, they basically had a member of the crew each. So he could shoot, he could uh, sound, he could edit. And they formed a thing called The Collective. And I was there as a sort of actress slash producer. To, I don't know what I did, but I used to think what a clever idea, you know, just out, especially for actors and writers, get in with those people that are finishing film school. You know, you're going to want to practice your skills. I want to practice mine. Let's work together. And even if it's, and I do, I've done this for years, weekends and evenings and anytime you can. And then you've got something to show. And then hopefully that will go into a festival and you can meet other like-minded people or it will go to a broadcaster and you can be considered for something. There is a a, a process in telly, which, um, which is either fair or unfair, but even with a great idea and you've made this great film and you've written this great thing, you're not going to necessarily get the writer or the producer job. Uh, they're going to want to buy it off you and take control and make it mm. because there is a there's a, a system in telly, you know, you maybe start off as a runner and then you maybe be a coordinator. And then if you're interested in scripts, you might move to a script coordinator. And if you're more of a producer, you might go production manager and line producer, and then you'll move over to a producer mm. role. It's that, that no one tells you which way the ladder goes, but there's a ladder that you have to keep stepping up the steps. So I'm in a thing called BAFTA Renovate, and there's some really impressive producers on there who have done a lot of independence and films and stuff, but they wouldn't get that job role in telly because of our stupid system somewhat. Mm. So you have to know what field you're playing in and, and play the rules. You know, you're not going to, um, just because you've got the skills, it doesn't mean you're going to get that role. So sometimes you have to be quite clever and take a step down to go up there, that person's ladder or that company's ladder. Mm. Cool. Uh, I'm interested then, when you've got lots of projects going on kind of at the same time, how how do you compartmentalise your thoughts <laughs> for that stuff? Do you, do you diarise what you're working on or does it just, is it everything all at once? I mean, I'm a bit scatty. So sometimes I'll, I'll put in meetings and I'll put in like, think about this, think about that. But it's like, how do you watch telly? Do you watch one show at once or do you watch six shows at once? I'm a six shows at once type of person. Mm. My I have capacity for a lot of stories. Like I said, I have about 12 things on my slate. Because a lot of them are out at the minute, I'm meeting writers all day today to think about more projects I can develop. Um, because I feel like... I mean, I've got a working class hustle to me. I think you know, I'm sort of like I said, I'm not stacking shelves, so I I'm constantly sort of overworking, if you like, and thinking about what I can do, more, what can I do more than that person, and more than that person, and what can I do even more to stand out. But no, for me, it's okay. I sort of just flipped between the different stories, and like today, I'm getting two of them packaged up to go out to a broadcaster. So one, I've just done script notes. I did script notes at the gym on Friday, actually. I was on the treadmill like this. <laughs> They're probably unreadable. But um, <laughs> she'll, the writer will do that pass and send me it. And I've done a treatment and then got another script and treatment. And I'll do an email and send that out. And when it's out, it's out. Mm. You know, that's it. My job is done until they hopefully pick it up or want to develop it. Or mm. um, So, yeah, I think I have capacity for a lot of stories in my brain. And I just work that way. Fair enough. I, I know that the sort of helping out other people um, who might be working class or, you know, not in a privileged mm. position is something that's important to you as well. I saw a tweet you sent out the other day about working with some new writers, I think. Well, it wasn't writers and it blew up. Oh, it was, was producers. thousand views. I, was, I meant uh, <laughs> APs, coordinators, people that were in telly, runners. That's what I wanted. It's more of like, like for, people that want to do my job. For like a mentor. But I had a type. lot of writers and a lot of actors reach out. And I did another tweet going, I don't mean actors and writers, but that one obviously only got 3,000 views. So there is a couple of people on there that I like the look of. So there's a, a meeting a couple of writers, a couple of female writers this afternoon. They were quite interesting. Um, and there's a few other people that I thought, okay, I'm going to read your scripts and see what you've got. Yeah. It's hard when writers go, I've got an idea, because it could be the best idea in the world and it could be a rubbish script or it could be the rubbish idea in the world and a great script. Yeah, It's really hard for that. People just have to do it and present it. Um, or sometimes if you do get half hour with a producer on a call, you can pitch it and get them interested and then they're in there from the ground up and they want to sort of water the seeds with you. 
Um, but yeah, I do care about, I, I care about, I mean, I, I came from Northampton and I've always paid. And I remember when I first moved here and it was like £140 rent a week. It's just untenable. Like, I just think, how do people do it? You do it and you get by. But so if there's any, if there's any, my personal thing that I would like to help out is people that are doing that jump and people that come from families that aren't paying anything. And I, I think I've got a bit of a soft spot for people that haven't been to uni as well. That doesn't mean I think uni's bad. It's great. <laughs> I wish I went. But if you didn't get a sociology degree, I think you're going to be fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not you know a barrier. I mean? So, yeah. But obviously, just diversity and inclusion all round. But, but yeah, my, I don't hear many people that – I don't meet or work with many people that sound, sound like me or think like me. And I think that's – you know, I think it, there's a – I think there's a real class disparity. Well, there is. Statistically, there's a class disparity in TV. Is it uh, is it class or is it money or both? As in, like, say, say, hard it is to put yourself in in London or to have you know years of wilderness years when you're trying to make your way. If you haven't got a a sort of financial, well, I think they come hand in hand usually, don't they? If yeah. you're, a, you're a bit more middle class you've probably got a bit of money and a bit of support behind you um both really i think uh being in a class above gives you different networks mm. um and it gives you a, a, even a different mentality like if you didn't struggle for money you don't have that weird relationship with money that working class people have like i almost have to get rid of it when i earn money it's almost like i need to get out because that you know i should ha- i shouldn't have any that unpicking is a lot, and especially going from having no money into a freelance industry, which is feast or famine, it's really, really tough. And there's very little support for freelancers in this industry. And we support this industry. We make up half the workforce. Um, yeah, I don't, know what, I don't know what the answer is, but I do try and support as many people as I can um, who have that story to tell. And also, like, it, just parts of the country that just get completely forgotten about, like they don't exist. You know, you think, oh, when was the last time this town was on telly? And it was like 20 years ago on a yeah. bloody drama. And I, I just think um, there's a bigger world than just London. I say that as I live in London, but there is. I'm very um, expecting to not shoot in London for the next 20 years, put it that way. Expecting because that's already happening, you mean, or because... Yeah, I just don't... I think people want to take things out. They want to show different parts of the world. I think studio shows will always be within the M25. Well, not always, but... I mean, there's lots of work being done to regionalise telly, but um, I've always felt that there's 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 a bit more to do with sort of uh, making it more equal with class. Yeah, and it's interesting that so like I'm in in the Midlands and there does appear to be more from, yeah. yeah so more castings that are like regional accents or even Birmingham accent but you sort of part of your turns up thinking well I've got a Birmingham accent but what they mean <laughs> is that they yeah, want me yeah. to to sort of cartoon yeah. it a bit and it's like do I want to do that I don't know so it's it's always what people's perception of these things are as well I guess makes I, know, and I can't remember the last time I saw Birmingham on a scripted show. Well, it's a massive city. There's loads, you know. There's a couple of things I've got on my books, and ones in Liverpool, ones in Sheffield, and they really excite me because I think, yeah, I want to see those backdrops. And also, people, very Southerners' impression of what these places are like. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? When you think, about oh, your chalk, and you think, they're not like that. They're yeah. really multicultural, beautiful, amazing cities. I yeah. mean, Liverpool got the bloody Eurovision, for God's sake. So yeah. I feel like, yeah, but I do understand that it's hard. And for 20, 30, 40 years, all crew moved down to London because this was the sort of media hub. Now they're being asked to go back around. And it's people have said, set, I've settled here. Yeah. I would have settled probably somewhere else if I if I didn't have to. But yeah, who knows the answer? All right, cool. Gene, and thanks so much. That's been absolutely fascinating. I was a bit dry, wasn't I? No, no, it's all right. If people want to catch up with you and see what you're doing, is Twitter the best way to do that? Yes, please. Don't do Instagram. It's a bit overbearing because I've got kids on there and stuff. But um, Twitter, LinkedIn. There's also, I I spoke to the guy that runs the Scribe Lounge and he's going to put on a session so I can chat to a load of writers at the same time. So that'll be announced, I think, soon. And I think it'll be sort of mid-August. 
Uh, I don't know when this is out, but yeah, I'll, I'll try and do things, especially when the industry is quiet. I'll try and speak to people more at one time. So what do I know? <laughs> We're all just floating around. We are, but it's just fascinating to hear people who are doing it. So from like those of us who are trying to get into stuff, it's just interesting to hear. Because you kind of have that thing of like, you know, it feels like closed shop a little bit. Well, things always do when you're on the outside of them, don't they, I suppose? So to just get that, oh, it's just normal people, even now, freelancers. Like, no, even now, I feel, you know, if you don't have imposter syndrome, you're probably a narcissist, so don't worry. We're all, we're all everyone's bluffing. And just look up and look at other people. And what are they doing? What are they doing? What are they doing? Who's winning there? Who's winning there? And association and learn and get mentors and... Uh, you just have to you just have to research what you're trying to do yeah. and where you're trying to be and look at people's steps yeah. um, and think what can I do and what can I do similar and if it was comedy I'd say the circuit is the best place for it if you want to act and it's more sketch stuff if you think you're a funny writer try stand up it is the, it, we have this amazing robust stand up industry in the UK and you can do it all over the UK from the very top to the very bottom you can earn money from it but it's always at night so you can have a full time job as well I think that is the home for that is really our place where we breed comedy but equally so you know like oh, there's a, another guy I work with and he blew Twitter, TikTok up because he just started saying what he thought on TikTok and making funny things there so social media has helped and then it's just um, try and stick with the people that are doing it and and work out the steps that they take and, and get a mentor. All right. Great. Thanks so All much, right. Gina. That's been great. Well, lovely to meet you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. Join us next time on the Robert Lane Creative Careers Podcast. Until then, please subscribe, rate and review and have a look at robertlanemusic.co.uk to see the other projects I'm working on. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye.